Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 2008, actor uh, Liam Neeson starred in an action movie thriller called Taken. Neeson played former CIA operative Brian Mills, who sets out to rescue his teenage daughter and her best friend, who have been kidnapped by Albanian sex traffickers while visiting Paris, France. Although the movie far exceeded its box office projections, uh, it grossed more than $226 million worldwide. But what is arguably more Famous than the film itself and its box office earnings is the short speech that Liam Neeson's character gave to his daughter's captors over a cell phone call just before the movie kicks into high gear. Here's what this protective father promised her captors. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. There's a funny version of this uh, on YouTube. I saw it last Christmas. Liam Neeson was on the Stephen Colbert show, and he does, he, they basically did a little skit where he auditions for the role of Santa Claus. And he blends parts of this speech with, um, the, the Santa Claus song. So he says, uh, I see you when you're sleeping. <laughs> I know when you're awake. I will find you. You know, and, and he's wearing a Santa Claus outfit. But uh, in the article that examined, a couple years ago, there was an article that examined this famous speech. Uh, it was in Esquire magazine. It says that Neeson's uh, message uh, was similar to Winston Churchill's We shall fight on the beaches and Martin Luther King's I have a dream speeches. In that Neeson's speech contains promises, repetition, hope, and references to a day of reckoning. Now, although similar in plot, in that this was a family in danger movie, similar to the Harrison Ford movies in the 1990s, and it's similar in style to the Bourne trilogy uh, in the early 2000s, I don't think Taken was successful because of plot or style. Instead, I think the movie was popular because it was built on a universal truth that we all resonate with. And that is, we all have a God-given instinct to support and protect those whom we love, especially fathers. And so dads, who the movie is primarily marketed to, resonate especially with this movie because dads have a special, well, daughters have a special place in dads' hearts. 
And so dads can see that movie and go, yeah. And we hear that speech and go, you bet I would if my daughter was taken. But moms are the same too with their kids. Third John is built on a similar premise. With the grit of a father and the tenderness of a grandfather, the Apostle John writes a passionate letter to the early church fueled by the God-given instinct to support and protect his children in the faith. We're wrapping up our series today in John's letters called Authentic Walk. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 3 John. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers will bring one to you. I want to encourage you to take out the sermon notes that you received when you came in this morning. They're in the worship folder and follow along with me. Just a little bit of background about 3 John. If you've been gone for a little bit or maybe this is the first time you've been here, uh, 3 John is one of three letters that the Apostle John wrote in the sunset of his life. Uh, He was the last apostle that ministered with Jesus. And this is approximately 90 to 95 AD. So it's the end of the first century. And that date's important because it's 50 years after Jesus had died and was resurrected and ascended. During that time, uh, Jesus, excuse me, John saw Jesus die, he saw Jesus' mother die, and the rest of the apostles martyred for the gospel. Thus, we can understand why the gospel message was so dear to him. And he fights for the gospel message uh, uh, and contends for it in his letters. But we can also see that the gospel was so dear to him because he didn't mind what it had cost him. It had cost him a lot, but he, did, he was glad for that because of what the gospel meant to him. Now, what he did mind was the fact that people, some people, flippantly claim to know Jesus that don't really know him, and John takes issue with that. And this is why John uses a tone in his letters that is both prophetic in correction, but also pastoral in comfort. He, he's, he's prophetic and pastoral. There's one key word I want to point out to you in 3 John. Uh, and you've heard me say before, it's important to look for key words or repeated words because it helps us understand the theme of the book and it helps us interpret the book accurately. And the one key word in 3 John is uh, the word truth. It's the word truth. And it's a carryover from 2 John. It's one of his favorite words. It's used five times here in 3 John in the first 12 verses. And there's, there's just 15 verses in the entire letter. It, it, it's a reference to God's word in the gospel. John uses truth to refer to the indisputable reality of what God's word says about God, about his son, about people, and about the world. Now here's the key verse, or the theme verse for 3 John. It encapsulates what John is trying to convey here in in his passion and his emotion for the church that he's writing to. Uh, I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible. It's 3 John verse 4. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Throughout this series, we've heard John, uh, this venerable church statesman, tell us one simple truth in several different ways. And I've said it over and over as well, where you could probably repeat it. And that is that real Christians really walk with Christ. And over the past 14 weeks, John has told us that authentic Christ followers, those that have truly been born again, will uh, 
walk in fellowship with others. They will walk in obedience. They will walk in discernment, in love, in the spirit, in prayer, and in truth. And he's told us all these things with the boldness of, of someone that has nothing left to lose and not much time left to live. In his final letter here, 3 John, he addresses the topic of church unity. And thus our big idea for today is this. Real Christ followers love the Lord's church by supporting and protecting it. Real Christ followers love the Lord's church by supporting and protecting it. Unlike the first two letters that John wrote, 3 John is a personal letter. It's written to a man named Gaius that has corporate applications. The letter does. It's, it's a letter comprised of 15 verses. It's a letter of commendation. It's a letter of condemnation and protection. The apostle commends Gaius and another man named Demetrius, We'll meet very soon here. And he condemns a third man named Diotrephes. And John does it to protect the church. And so, here's at least two questions that John, I think, answers for us in his letter. And that is, first of all, how can you tell if someone loves the Lord in his church? And... How can I distinguish a church divider from a church uniter? What's the difference between two such people? And they all exist in all churches. And so with that, if you would look at the text with me in 3 John, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now let me just make a couple observations about John, or John's greeting here. First of all, who was Gaius? Well, um, we don't actually know much about him. Uh, his name was very common in the first century, like Mike or John would be today, or Steve. His name means Lord, small l, uh, and he appears to be a layman at one of the churches near Ephesus where John was ministering, probably out in the countryside or maybe a suburb of Ephesus. And so... Uh, uh, although Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians mention a man named Gaius that traveled with Paul, most scholars believe this is not the same guy. This was a different man. Uh, notice John says, I have no greater joy. There is nothing that brings him more pleasure than to see his children, meaning those that he has led to Christ, those that are in the churches he oversees, walking in the truth. John is saying, I'm stoked that you're growing spiritually, man. This is awesome. And I'm hearing about it from people that are coming back to me and giving me updates about your church. I think this is because, as you will see later, there are others that don't grow spiritually in churches. 
There are others that cause problems in churches. And so pastors and elders really love it when they get a, a taste or a sense or hear of some people that are growing and changing in Christ. It, it just blesses us. I get fired up when I hear some of you share a God story or maybe something you read in your devotions that impacted you or uh, answered a prayer. And it makes me want to do cartwheels like I'm in junior high again. And, um, or... or Notice how, was John fired up that they made a profession of faith? No. He says, I have no greater joy than you're walking in the truth. Big difference between a profession of faith and walking in the truth. So what does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, we covered this a little bit last week. It was a, a favorite saying of John's in 2 John. And we learn that walking in the truth means to arrange, to adjust, and submit one's life to the Word of God. In such a way that you agree with and adopt God's perspective on Himself, His Son, yourself, and the world. To, to walk in the truth means to, to change your thinking, your affections, and your behavior so that they match the thinking, affections, and behavior of the Lord. Now, this is important in a local church when talking about unity because, as I said last week, church unity is built on the never-changing Word of God, while church division is built on the ever-changing preferences of men. Look at the text again with me in verses 5 through 8. We get into the body of John's letter now. And John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support and provide Excuse me, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Here's the first thing that John tells us uh, uh, in his letter. And point number one in your outline is this. Real Christ followers practice charity. They practice charity. So the body of John's letter begins with a commendation of Gaius' charity. He, he lifts Gaius up as, Here, you're doing a great job. You need to keep doing what you're doing, and we need other people doing what you're doing. It's possible that others in the church were not being charitable. And so just as any good leader would do, John elevates and publicly praises the behavior of Gaius in hopes that others will see that example and do the same. And so he compliments Gaius's hospitality. That's letter A. His hospitality. John, John says, it's a faithful thing that you do. This could be translated, um, another way you could render it from the original language, you've demonstrated a loyalty to the gospel and the Lord. A loyalty. And you've done so by opening your home to these men that I have sent to you. Well, well, who were they? In verse 5, John says they were brothers, strangers as they are. He's referring to a group of traveling missionaries or preachers that John had dispatched to go out across the, the region to preach the gospel, maybe plant churches or to go and preach at other churches that existed. And, and he, he was directing Gaius' church 
to allow these missionaries to stay over at his house and, and for them to feed them and, and, and minister to them and, and help them get recharged as they continued on their journey. And so uh, John says, you already did a great job. And these missionaries, they came back and they said, you were wonderful. And, and, and I'm sending them back to you again. I need you to do the same thing. Notice at verse 6, he says, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So, so, so these missionaries, they had already visited Gaius' church, reported back to John in Ephesus how well they were treated, and now they're being sent back to Gaius again for a second time. And so John, in essence, says, please take care of them again, just like you did the first time, and remember to give them your very best hospitality because you're doing it for the Lord. Do it in a manner worthy of God. You know, interesting, practicing hospitality is not only commanded for all believers, but it's also a qualification for spiritual leadership. It's listed in 1 Timothy 3 as one of the many qualifications for being an elder. I think there are many reasons for this, that spiritual leaders and church members are expected to be hospitable. A few that come to mind are hospitality, first of all, forces us to uh, get out of our comfortable relationship circle and, and to, to get to know some other people and to let them get to know us. It, it, it's, it makes us serve others, which helps keep our selfishness at bay. Uh, it, it helps us uh, others get a peek into our home life and get to know us better and who we are and gives us a chance to encourage them and their walk and you know, hospitality takes time, takes resources and effort, and you have to clean your house to give them the impression that your house always looks that way. And Sometimes I've said to Maya, you know, our house is getting kind of messy. We should probably have somebody over, you know, so we can get it all cleaned up, looking good again. Um, so next, he commends not just guys his hospitality, but also his generosity. That's letter B. Uh, John says, we ought to support people like these. Uh, Gordon Zerkowski from Five Stone Churches often likes to say, the church doesn't run on air. It, 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 it needs financial resources to survive just like any family does. Uh, even Paul encouraged this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And we believe the scriptures, the scriptures strongly teach our tithe, the first 10% of our income, should go to the local church to help feed the church so it can grow and, and do its ministries. But then the church also uh, should give offerings above and beyond the tithe to things like missionaries and other ministries to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And one of the many blessings of such generosity, according to John, is, it, look at your Bible again in verse 8, is it? We may be fellow workers for the truth or partners in the gospel. We're helping when we give back to the Lord in tithes and offerings. We're helping spread the gospel is what he's saying. So applications, there are two that come to mind uh, as I looked at the text and asked myself, what, what, what does the Lord want us to do here with this? What is, what is the Lord through John commending in Gaius? Well, the first application that comes to mind is, 
open your calendar in your home if you haven't already or if it's been a long time. In fact, when is the last time you invited somebody from the church over to your home for a meal or over for a cookout or maybe invited them to go out for coffee? When's the last time you invited a visitor out to lunch on Sunday after service? And, hey, let's go out to lunch together. We want to get to know you better, and we'll buy. You know. Hospitality takes time, but it's always time well spent. I remember when I was in college, um, a friend of mine was going to church with me, and uh, I had gotten kind of plugged into our college church that we went to, and and I had a relationship with a pastor, and that certainly helped because he, he discipled me. But uh, I remember my college friend said, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to go here anymore. Why? He said, well, nobody talks to me. Okay, well, have you... That's funny. I have not had that experience. Um, have you ever tried to talk to anybody? And he was... Granted, he was an introvert, but he, he kind of, you know, during the meet and greet time... He didn't really initiate. He didn't introduce himself to anybody. He didn't step out at all. And so he had formed a perspective of the church that nobody talks to me. They all have their own friends, which obviously is pretty egocentric. And so uh, um, he ended up at another church, and he stayed there, and hopefully he ended up happy there. But, uh, but I always think of that when, when I think about hospitality or somebody thinking, well, nobody, nobody talks to me, nobody gives me time. Well... Are you friendly? Have you stepped out? Maybe they're afraid of you because of the way you look, you know? I mean, if you just go like this, it's not real inviting to want to talk to somebody. Here's the next application. Open your checkbook if you haven't already. Many of you have brought your finances under the authority of God's word since coming to Vanguard, and, uh, and it shows. I'm continually amazed at what our little church is able to do financially. However, there may be others, though, that haven't done so yet, and you're not able to give biblically because you've tied up the Lord's money in too many other places, and you may need to get rid of some things or sell some things or uh, unload some debt or something like that so that you can give biblically and make sure that Jesus is directing your finances. If you need to hear teaching on this, I want to recommend you check out, if you never heard what God's Word has to say about giving, I want to encourage you to check out a message I preached a couple years ago on this called Balancing the Books. It's on our website, and it should be on our podcast. So, real Christ followers, love the Lord's church by supporting and protecting it. Next, look at uh, verses 9 and 10 with me. We now have another character introduced, Diotrephes. And he is someone John does not want us to imitate. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Here's number two in your outline, real Christ followers protect church unity. Real Christ followers protect church unity. So we're introduced to this man, Diotrephes, who, whose behavior John is condemning. Diotrephes' name in the Greek means nourished by Zeus or child of Zeus, which if that doesn't 
sound like you've got an ego problem. I don't know what does, but um, it appears that he was a leader in the church, possibly a, a, a bishop or an elder in the church where Gaius was a lay member. And what had happened is that John tried writing Diotrephes, asking the church to extend hospitality to the missionaries he was sending their way, but Diotrephes must have withheld the letter or destroyed the letter, but he didn't tell the church. Instead, he just kind of acted like it never existed and didn't do what John asked. Thus, 3 John is now John the Apostle sending a second letter to the same church, but instead of sending it to Diotrephes, he's sending it to Gaius the layman, saying, can you help out here because I ran into a block with your leader, and Gaius, you may not know your leader's doing this. It's possible that Diotrephes did not like someone from outside of his community telling him what to do. Kind of sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? There are quick, uh, three quick observations that I have from these two verses. First of all, there are people that abuse authority and reject authority and have selfish motives in churches. There also are elders that are commanded by the Scriptures to deal with such divisiveness. Titus 3.10 is a, is a great reference. And then thirdly, a third observation, God hates such divisiveness. It angers Him. In fact, let me just show you Proverbs chapter 6, verses 19, sorry, 16 and 19. Uh, the sage writes, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. John gives us a profile of Diotrephes' behavior, and I think it's a profile of a church divider. And so here's uh, A, B, C, and D on your outline. What follows here is a description of what Diotrephes was doing to cause harm to the church. In letter A, uh, John says, he promotes himself. Uh, church dividers promote themselves. They, they, they think they should be, and they like to talk up their abilities and they think they should be the one out front. The Greek text says he was fond of being in charge. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel chapter 15 where King David's son Absalom did great damage to the kingdom, promoting himself. If you haven't read the story, it's like a movie, an epic movie. 2 Samuel 15 to 19 Absalom sits at the city gate while his father sits on the throne. And Absalom says to people all day and all night as they come in and out of the city. And he says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here for the sake of time, but you know, if I was in charge, you know, your life would be a lot better. You, you would have instant access to me. And you would get just rulings on your court cases and so on and so forth. 
After a while of spreading his venom to naive people, the text tells us in 2 Samuel 15 that Absalom stole the hearts of 200 men and led a rebellion against his father. Eventually, his sin caught up to him when he rode under a tree and his big head got caught in the branches and he hung himself. Isn't the Lord, well, you could say he has a sense of humor, but uh, interesting that Absalom's head got stuck and he ended up killing himself as the horse continued to walk on without him. Next, uh, church dividers reject authority. They reject authority. Uh, John says, he, this diatrophies guy, he doesn't acknowledge us. He won't respect us. He doesn't listen to us. What's sad and ironic about people who scheme to get authority is that they eventually end up losing it. But those who receive authority from the Lord usually end up keeping it. However, before granting it, the Lord, I have noticed, works in the life of the future leader to teach them submission first, and once they've learned submission to authority, he grants it to them. Because they have to learn how to submit to authority before they know how to use authority. I can tell you he's done the same in my life. Leaders who don't submit to authority often end up abusing it. And what a reminder of how prideful and critical the human heart can be. I mean, I, I, please don't miss this. Notice, here's Diotrephes saying, I don't want to do what the Apostle John says. We don't know why exactly. Maybe he just didn't like John, but think about this for a second. John's the last living apostle that ministered with Jesus. He's one of Jesus' inner circle. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, his favorite disciple. He's, he's the disciple that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus told John, and that's take care of my family. So he took care of Jesus' family. He's the disciple that wrote the gospel of John. He's the disciple that, that suffered for the gospel for the last 50 years, but he still wasn't worthy of Diotrephes' respect. So as I was looking at this, I was thinking, who would have been good enough? Maybe he needed Jesus. Nah, Jesus wouldn't have been good enough for him either. Like, really? You're not going to submit to the Apostle John? If you're not going to submit to John, then he probably isn't going to submit to anybody. Kind of makes me wonder, <laughs> well... Jesus, probably not going to be good enough for John or for, for Diotrephes either. He probably would have found a problem with Jesus. You know, he's just too humble. He's too weak. But the problem wasn't with John's leadership. The problem was Diotrephes' pride. You see, when we're filled with pride, we have a critical spirit. And when we have a critical spirit, we, we find faults in the authority so that we can excuse not submitting to the authority. Somehow we try to disqualify that. And what's interesting is in my study of the scriptures on authority um, is, is that nowhere do I see in the scriptures, I haven't found it yet, I'm still looking, but I haven't found it yet, where God says, if you don't like the authority, you are exempt from submitting to it. Or if you find a fault in the authority, you don't have to submit to them. 
No, the, the only thing I've been able to find is that if the authority asks you to sin, then you are exempt. I, I, I can't remember if I told you this story before, but I was struggling with this at another church I was serving at under a senior pastor, and I was having a hard time respecting him. I saw some character flaws in him that were very concerning, and some theology issues too. Um, and I remember driving to work one day, and I was... I was uh, uh, just praying, Lord, help me, please help me, please, Lord, I need you, help me, help me, help me. And, and I remember I was meditating on 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Um, um, and he goes on and says, he says, uh, Servants, be, be, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust ones. Literally, the Greek, he says, the crooked ones. And so in other words, what Peter was saying to the suffering Christians is, stop making your suffering be an excuse for not submitting. Instead, submit to the authority and trust God. And, when I, and what I heard the Spirit say to me through 1 Peter 2 is, hey, Carrie, is that senior pastor that you're serving under, is he, is he abusing you in some way? No. Is he, you know, is he whipping you like the slaves here in 1 Peter 2 got whipped? Oh, no, no. Then why don't you just submit to him and trust me? Because I put him there. And when I'm done with him, I'll take him out. Next. John says Diotrephes was slandering the leaders, talking wicked nonsense against us. This is something else that church dividers do. To slander means to, to discredit or damage the reputation of someone. And Diotrephes was spreading lies about John in order to discredit him, and John was not happy. In fact, it's just, I mean, this ought to just make anybody quake in their boots. I mean, John says in, in, he says in verse 10, So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Another rendering for this would be, I'm going to hold him accountable. I mean, <laughs> that's just, John's coming here? He's coming to this church? <gasps> the Apostle John? I mean, but, but John, sadly, slander is one of the things that the adversary uses to create division in churches. And Diotrephes might have been saying things, whispering to his church members. You know, you know why John wants us to support these missionaries that he's sending here? It's because he wants to replace me. I mean... I married you, and, 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 I, and I baptized your kids. I mean, do you want an outsider to come in here and replace me? That's what John's doing. He, he, I mean, I, I was born and raised in this community. Do you want to see me replaced? Just weaving his web to get people to distrust John and, and, and not believe John had good intent. I mean, this is our church. Is another thing that a church divider says. You know, who are they to tell us what to do over there? They don't know us. And yet, what's sad is that if it wasn't for John, that church wouldn't even exist. I had to deal with that in one particular church where I served. Uh, it was the first church plant that I did. I had an elder who repeatedly said to me, 
you know, we don't need the association telling us what to do. They don't know our community like we know our community. And, you know, who are they? And, and, and what was sad is that we had the association's name, logo, seed money they gave us. And yet he didn't somehow through his pride process the fact that if it wasn't for the association, we're not here having this conversation. Why would we want to kick them to the curb now and say, we don't need you? It was their idea to start the church in the first place. They put the money forward to start it. They gave us the name and the logos and everything else we needed. And now you want to just hijack it? He was being divisive. Diotrephes might have said some other slanderous things, whispering to his church members, did you know the reason that John is still down here on earth is that Jesus thinks he's not ready for heaven yet? And that's how crazy, and I'm using humor a little bit obviously to make a point, but that's how crazy prideful people being influenced by the adversary can get. And I think that's close to the wicked nonsense John's referring to here. Next, letter D, they protect their turf. To make matters worse, Diotrephes was kicking people out of the church that opposed him or helped the missionaries that John was sending. Hey, I heard that you had some of those missionaries at your house last night for dinner. Guess what? This is your last Sunday here. Hit the road, Jack. What? That's how protective he was getting, like it was his church and... So threatened by John. Although the Bible does not, it does encourage actually church discipline with excommunication as a last resort. It doesn't condone uh, autocratic leadership where you can just kick anybody out of the church for any reason. There have to be biblical reasons, sin and unrepentant sin and patterns of divisiveness that have been demonstrated over time. So church dividers, according to John, looking at Diotrephes, they they, they promote themselves, they reject authority, they slander leaders, they protect their turf. So what's the application? Well, one that comes to mind for me is that we need to strengthen unity by not tolerating disunity. We, we do it by being willing to interrupt a brother or sister with, are you, you sure you should be telling me this right now? Does, does the, the person you're talking about know you're sharing this with me? Because I just want to make sure we're not gossiping. Or, or have you spoken directly to this person about your concerns? You're saying, you're telling me this person, the other person in the church, your small group hurt you. Well, Matthew 18 says you're supposed to go talk to them about that. Why are you telling me? I'm just saying because I, I love you and I care about our church more than I care about upsetting you. You see, we strengthen unity when we hold our preferences loosely, but our biblical convictions tightly. And we strengthen unity when we squash complaining that's petty and meaningless. And we're willing to hold each other accountable in love and say, hey, you know, you need to go talk to that person and get that relational issue worked out so the adversary doesn't blow it up and make it worse. And he will. So... Real Christ followers, they protect church unity. And they do it because they love the Lord's church and they want to support it and protect it. 
Lastly, let's look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. In other words, don't do what Diotrephes is doing. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Here's number three in your outline, the last thing that John tells us, and that is that real Christ followers possess a good testimony. We don't know much about Demetrius, but he was probably one of the missionaries John was sending to Gaius, and it's believed, it's probable, that Demetrius was the one carrying this letter. And what we do know about him is that he received the best endorsement that anyone could ask for. I mean, it'd be like if you were a basketball coach and LeBron James endorsed you. I mean, having the Apostle John write your name and say good things about you, I mean, that's just a resume builder if I ever saw one. The Apostle John said he was a godly man. You've heard me say before, uh, nearly every person that has a compliment by their name in the scriptures was commended in some way for their relationship with the Lord. Demetrius is just another example. I mean, notice he does, John doesn't say, Demetrius is a nice guy. Take good care of him. He doesn't say he's a good-looking guy. Make sure he stays good-looking. You know, he doesn't say he's, he's fun to be around. Have a good time with him. No, no, no. He says he, 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 is, he has a good testimony, and the truth itself verifies it. You've heard me say before, uh, one of the worst things you can say about another believer is that they are nice. But the greatest thing you can say about another believer is that they are godly. That they are godly. And that matters to the Lord. So, an application regarding Demetrius, what can we learn from him? Well, obviously, he was walking in the truth, and because of his life, John endorsed him as saying, this guy's got a great testimony. He represents the Lord well. So, so I think the application is remember who you represent. If you claim to know Christ, there are certain things you just can't do, and there are certain things you should be doing. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to know you're being watched. And people are forming and drawing conclusions about the Lord based on what you do. Your kids are, your relatives are, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. And as you've heard me also mention before, the Lord takes his name very seriously. So it leads to the question, what's the word on the street about your testimony? If we were to go to the place where you work or your neighborhood or go talk to family members and take a camera and a microphone and go interview them and say, hey, what, what can you tell us about so-and-so, one of our members? What do you know about them? What do you think of them? What would they say? Would, would, would your family, friends, and coworkers call you godly? Or would they commend some aspect of your relationship with the Lord? Or, or would they 
would they say something about you that could be said about an unbeliever? Which basically means you would be indistinguishable from an unbeliever. Real Christ followers possess a good testimony because they know who they represent and they're walking in the truth and others see it and notice it. Well, we've all been given a God-given instinct to support and protect the things that we love. Conversely, you can tell what someone loves by looking at what they're willing to support and protect. Do you love Vanguard Bible Church? And I want to encourage you to love the Lord's church by supporting it and protecting it. Because if we don't, it might just be taken. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for John and all that we've learned from him. Thank you, Lord, that you were able to redeem him being on earth as long as he was. He was here long enough to write, not just the Gospel of John, but these letters and in Revelation, so that we could be blessed by them. Thank you, Lord, for his boldness to call out Diotrephes and to commend Gaius and Demetrius. Father, please, would you... Would you help us as church to be like Gaius and Demetrius, to be commendable, to be godly and hospitable, kingdom-minded, thinking about spreading the gospel in all that we do. And Lord, would you protect us from any diatrophies. And Lord, protect us from becoming a diatrophies. Lord, I know there are some here that have been hurt in other churches that were taken hostage by someone like a Diotrephes. Please, Lord, would you bring good out of that betrayal? Would you redeem it? And please, Lord, would you deal justly with those people that have hurt your church? Father, we love you and we ask for your favor and your protection on Vanguard Bible Church. Would you grant us fruit from our labor here in Bakersfield? Father, would you please call people to Vanguard that can help us build this church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.